Please open them up to the, uh, the book of Psalms and turn to Psalm chapter 4. This is the last time that we're going to uh, be looking at Psalms for some time. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to preach through all 150 at this rate. Uh, but so this is our last Psalm for some time. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you, Psalm chapter uh, 4, if you wouldn't mind turning there. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, we're going to uh, have it on, at, uh, on the screen as well. So you can turn your attention to the screen. It goes as follows. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Shelah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a wonderful psalm. This psalm uh, comes after Psalm 3, obviously. Um, And uh, Psalm 3 was a psalm when David found himself in a bit of trouble. It was a tough, difficult moment. And well, guess what? Psalm 4 is just like that as well. Another time of trouble. And isn't that just like life? You go through a difficult time. And you just come out the other side and you enter straight into another one. So some real good reality here for us. But Psalm 3 had a specific context. It was David fleeing from his son Absalom. Absalom was trying to kill him and take over um, being king of Jerusalem. Um, and so David writes that psalm in the midst of that trouble. But this particular psalm in Psalm 4, there's much speculation about when the psalm was written, but really we don't know. It could apply to a number of different situations in in David's life. Um, But what we can clearly see in this text is that David is in trouble. In fact, if we look at the second line um, in, in your Bibles, you'll notice it says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. That word distress there uh, can be understood and translated as a tight corner or tight spot. And I think every single one of us knows what it means to be in a tight spot. I have been in some literal tight spots in my life. How many of you have ever been to Kango Caves? Um, and you walk in there and there's this giant, massive cave and you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. And uh, then they say, okay, okay, we're going to go down there. And as you go, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to a place where like, oh, this is called the devil's chimney. It's not a, that already there should be a sign. And, uh, and you're going to go up it. Oh, and, and every time, I don't know if every time I've been, do the guides tell you, you know, someone last week got stuck in there for like seven hours. Just to, I, I'm sure they just do that, just to make you stress and they go tell stories afterwards about how, how everyone freaked out. And that there is a definition of a tight spot. Man, one of the other tight spots I found myself in was I was in primary school. I must have been about grade two or three, around about there. And our school went off to the Joan Harrison to go and have a day at the Joan Harrison like school outings are. And uh, we were having fun at the water polo pools, my particular class. And being ignorant and stupid at that age, not really knowing the dangers of what you're getting yourself into, uh, my mates and I were hanging off the bars, the, the crossbar of the water polo nets, and then dropping in and then laughing, finding that a whole lot of fun. I had just dropped in when my mate was holding on and the whole net came and fell over us. 
and started going under. And so you had a floor below you, a, a pool behind you, a net in front of you, a net above you, a net aside. Tight spots, to say the least. And, and so we can go through hardships in life that kind of feel like that. We feel like we've been pressured from every side. We, we feel like we can't move. And those are difficult moments of tight spots. And, and so David himself finds himself in one of those tight spots. But he, he doesn't, we don't know the context. Again, we don't know what the context is. But actually, I find quite a bit of comfort in that. The fact that there is no specific situation in which David finds himself when he writes this psalm means that we are able to apply to whatever tight spot you might find yourself in. You can, if we take and glean from the wisdom of David in the psalm, we'll be able to apply to your particular tight spot. And if you're not in a tight, a tight, a tight spot now, you'll be one shortly, <laughs> soon. <laughs> That's what life is. And so you are able to apply to that in, in the future as as, as well. But one of the things that I find is when, when we, sorry, before I get there, is, is that if we do that, if we apply the psalm to ourselves, what's going to happen is the application and the outcome of it is that we'll have confidence. The psalm is actually known as the psalm of confidence. We have a confidence in God in the midst of tight spots. We'll have a confidence and a peace that surpasses the situation we're in. So that's something we want, Right? That's something you want in the midst of hardship is a confidence in God in it and a peace in it. And so if we are able to apply, that should be the outcome. But having said that, though, that when every time I've gone through some difficult moments, when I've gone through tight spots in my life, at least this is me and, and some of the people that I've had the privilege of walking a journey with through their tight spots, is that often not only do we lack confidence that God is going to help us in our trouble, but we also lack a confidence that we can even approach him. I don't know if you've found that before, that when it is tough and difficult, you start to question whether or not God even wants to listen to you, whether you have done enough to somehow earn um, his favor, that he would give you his ear, that you, you start to question, man, maybe I need to sort myself up, pull myself up by my bootstraps, kind of dust myself off, get myself right, come and start doing some more Christian things so that in doing so, maybe then God will somehow reluctantly or, okay, now you've done enough, will listen to you. But David doesn't have that problem. The psalm is, while there's clear desperation in his voice, there's also quite a clear confidence in verse 1. Read it again. It says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayers. There's a confidence in David that God is going to listen to him and answer him. But why? Why can David be so confident that God is willing to hear him? Is it because David is the anointed king of Israel? Is it because he slayed Goliath? Is it because he um, is this great psalm writer? What is it that qualifies David to have the ear of God? We see it's right there in the very first line. It says, it says yeah, answer me when I call what? O God of my righteousness. David's confidence that he is able to approach God and get the ear of God is not that he is somehow good. It's not based on his kingship or the fact that he is the anointed king. It's not the fact that he's a great psalm writer, but it is the fact that God is his righteousness, not his morality. David is well aware that he himself is not good enough, but rather that God is his righteousness. My friends, that is the wonderful truth of the gospel. 
is that once we were sinners, if you are a Christian, you were once a sinner that was separated from God. You were unable to come to Him. Your sin stopped you from having a relationship with Him. In fact, Romans 5 talks about how we were the enemies of God, that we weren't able to have any relationship, never mind cry out to Him in help. We, we didn't want anything to do with Him, but yet God in His gracious love towards us comes and sees that we are far from him and that we desperately need him, that he would send his son Jesus to come and live among us, live the life that we can't live, a perfect life. And so when Jesus died on the cross, as he was there, our sin was laid upon his shoulders and the wrath of God that was meant for us was poured out on him. And in doing so, Jesus would die and three days later he would rise again, defeating death and sin. And so we're told in Scripture that if you believe in Christ, what happens is you have your sin taken off you and it is placed on Jesus. And not only doesn't it just stop there to leave you like morally neutral, that you're just like a good clean slate, but rather in fact there's something else that happens. That the righteousness of Christ, His perfect life, is taken and put on your shoulders. That now, now when God sees you, what does he see? He no longer sees someone who's messed up and sinned, but what he sees is the righteousness and perfectness of Jesus. And so you can confidently come before God because he's not chasing you away because of your ugly sin, but rather he's embracing you because of who you are in Christ. Nice, and he loves you because he has adopted you through Christ. You are righteous in him. And so you can confidently come before him. And this confidence that David has here is not like a strutting kind of a confidence. It's not an arrogance. It's not just walking in there demanding what I want. It's, it's a confidence that's quite humble. He realizes that while he has the righteousness of God that qualifies him to come in, it's by the grace of God he can do so. We see it at the end of verse 1. Look, at, look there again. It says, be gracious to me and hear my prayers. He, he still clings in these moments of the graciousness of God. And so in these moments, we can confidently come be, before God and depend on His grace because if He was willing to give His Son to you out of grace, how much now that you have Him, that you've accepted Him, would He not graciously listen to your prayers? And so we can confidently, as people who are in tight spots, as believers in Christ, we can confidently come knowing that God will hear us. We do not have to be ashamed. We do not have to think that we now have to somehow, out of nowhere, earn a morality that it will earn the ear of God, but rather because of who we are in Jesus, he will give it to us lovingly. Isn't that awesome? But it's more than that as well. We see in, in verse, verse 1 that David not only has the confidence that God will hear his prayer, but David has a confidence that God will answer him and be able to help him in the midst of the tight spot that he is in. Look at verse 1. It says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Past tense. He, he, David takes a moment to lift his eyes off his current trouble and looks back over his past. And what does he notice? He notices a God who has helped him out many, many times. He uses his logic a bit, and he goes, well, if God has helped me out six times, there, 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 and there, and there, and there. I don't know if that was six times, but there, he's helped me out six times, then surely he will help me out on the seventh. If he's done that in the past, then surely he would do it now. If God, when I was a young shepherd boy, was able to help me and, and deliver me from the, hands of, and from the mouths of bears and lions when I was a shepherd boy, surely now he would deliver me. 
If he delivered me when I stood before the great Goliath with five stones and a sling, surely in the midst of the tight spot now he will deliver me as well. Surely if God did not abandon me when Saul was chasing after me, King Saul with an army was coming after me, surely then he will not abandon me now. Surely when he did not abandon me, when my son had turned all of Israel against me, and as I fled away and he came after me, yet he delivered me, how much more will he do so now? And there's this wisdom in that for us. Man, when you are going through tight spots, there is wisdom to take your eyes off the current situation and look back and see the hand of God over your life. As, get, get real practical. Get a piece of paper out and a pen. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you and just start to jot out all the times God has delivered you out of tight spots. And what they will do as you do it, and, and I want you to notice here, David in this prayer is praising God for it. So he's not just recalling it, but every time he recalls it, he says, thank you, Lord, look what you've done. As you do that, what's going to happen is faith is going to be stirred in your hearts, and you are going to be, have this real confidence in your current tight spot that he will see you out. A confidence will arise out of that. Some of... Um, some of you might be saying to me, but Joe, before, actually before I get there, can you see that there is a blessing in tight spots? Can you see that there is a blessing behind going through hardship? That having gone through previous tight spots suddenly helps your confidence and endurance in, in the one that you're in now. That the past ones have matured you. If, if you've been squeezed from all angles in the past, it suddenly made you more mature, like a coal that has now become a diamond. You, you're able to be more and more mature and enduring for the future ones or the current one. And the current one that you're going through now will help you in the future as well. We have had many people in our congregation, some in, they come to the six, that have... Um, struggled financially, have struggled with jobs. They've been trusting for God for ages. Some of you are still doing that. And yet we've had testimonies of guys coming forward and saying, man, praise the Lord, after so many months, I finally found a job. I finally have finances. And I'm sure if you went to those people now and you said to them, man, in three years' time, you're going to lose your job again. And while they might not be stoked by that idea, I'm sure you, if you spoke to them, they'll be like, but yeah, God saw me through this last one. God provided in, in so many different ways that, in this, that if that happens again, I, I, I know he will do it again. Why? Because a previous hard spot financially means in the current one or the future one, they will know that God would see them through it. There is a blessing through going through hardship. This is why James can say in, in James 1 verses 2 to 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face uh, uh, face various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some of you might say to me, but Joe, man, as you speak, and I'm trying to think of all the times God has seen me out, I can't think of any. I just ha I don't have any of those hooks to hang confidence and faith on. And, and if you're a Christian this morning, I want to say that if that's your response, you've certainly forgotten about something. You've certainly forgotten about some major tight spot that you were in, and God has seen you out. And that is the fact that you were once dead in your sin. 
That is, you were helpless, unable to save yourself, yet God, we just sung about how holy he is. We, we just, we, I just, as we were singing that, I was just blown away by the fact that this holy God that spoke creation into being would humble himself and become man to die for me. But yet God would come so, so much because you were in such a desperate situation. You were hopeless, unable to save yourself, that God in Christ would come and die to to remove and take you out of this tight spot. If that is all you have, if that is the only tight spot God has ever got you out of, friend, I want to say to you that is the most sufficient hook to hang your confidence in. It is the most sufficient one to hold on to in the midst of tight spots. That if God would give me his son, how much would he look after me now? If he would come down and die for me and take on the form of man, leave glory for me because he loves me so much, why now would he abandon me now that he's back in glory? It is one that we are able to cling on to and hold on to. Actually, in fact, all others are secondary to this. This becomes the primary one in which we hold on to in the midst of tight spots. Cling on to it. Hold on to it. It will give you a confidence as you struggle with whatever you are struggling with. And maybe some of you this evening have popped in because you are going through a financial tight spot or your marriage is is on the rocks, your relationship with the kids are just bad, and, and you've hoped that somehow by walking through these buildings out of desperation that this would fix it. And, and, and while I want to say to you, while God cares about your marriage, he loves marriage, he designed it. While he cares for your marriage and hopes that it would come right. While he, would, he cares about you and would love to provide for you. While he cares about your relationship with your kids. More than saving all of those things, God cares more about saving your soul. And while you've come in here in a desperate situation, wanting to save a certain situation, I want, to, I want to tell you that there is a deeper, more desperate situation that you need saving in. And you need to come and be saved out of that. Now, I, I, I don't know how the, the story of uh, me and Daniel being caught under a water polo net finishes, not because I passed out underwater or anything like that, um, but because I have two stories in my mind. It was, it was like 20 years ago, so forgive me, and I was... I was uh, about nine-ish, and so one of them is really clear, but also seems really made up, um, which I probably did, and the other one seems less clear, but more realistic. The, the really made up one is I, as a nine-year-old Joey, swim under and hold it up like a hulk, and, uh, and Daniel swims out, and I save him. The other unclear one, but more realistic one is the lifeguard jumps in and pulls it out. Um, so I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that story. Um, and, and my friend, if you don't know Christ and, and you've walked in here this, this evening, you are in a desperate situation like Daniel and I were. Actually, in fact, your situation is more dire. Daniel and I were still alive. We had breath in our lungs and we were able to maybe move that ourselves. But the reality of the matter is you're dead in your sin. There's no life in your body. You're helpless. And what you need is you need a lifeguard to jump in, pull up that net, grab you out, and breathe life into you. And as you look around this room, I promise you none of us can do it. You look around to the society, no government, no person, no matter how good they might be, might be able to do it. 
the only person that can come and be that lifesaver for you is Jesus. We see this in Acts 4 verse 12. It says, for there is salvation in no one else. Um, for, uh, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no, name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can only be saved through Jesus. But the wonderful offer is if you just cry out to Christ, he will save you. If you repent and believe, he will pull you out and he'll breathe a life into you. He'll take your sin and place it on himself and he'll give you his righteousness. It's on offer. It's on offer for you. Don't, don't worry about the other ones. Those are all secondary to, the, to, to this tight spot you're in. And it is the most glorious tight spot that you can get out of. Let's move on. We see here in verses 2 and 3, it says the following. It says, Oh, men, that the, the word men there has an imagery of prestige, of power. It has this, and this, these guys of massive influence. He's talking to these powerful, influential men. He says, Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. So David here shifts his attention. He's been... Uh, praising and speaking God, to God, asking him to come in. But now he shifts, uh, shifts his attention to these powerful, influential men who are speaking badly of him. They're not only speaking badly of him, they're lying about him, they're shaming him, they're dishonoring him, they're bringing his name into disrepute. Essentially what they're trying to do is make his kingship null and void. They're really trying to come after him as king and they're attacking him. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that when someone comes after you personally, after your character. Um, I have before, and, uh, and I can tell you, I don't respond well, not like, I, or at least I, I didn't in the past. Um, I become angry. I, you, this is, I'm, I'm sure this is most people's feelings, as I say I here, but we become angry, we, we, we become bitter, we use opportunities to, to anyone else that will hear our, our defense, but also we take our defense to slander and make bad those people's names as much as we possibly can. Um, we take other opportunities to really break them down. Um, we get anxious. It causes us stress. It, it saps all the joy out of your life when you go through moments like this. And I can remember uh, going through a moment like this, and Alyssa and I, I just needed to get away for the weekend. It was just overwhelming for me, and so we headed up to Hog's Back, and uh, we went up to Hogsback for a holiday, and I listened to this album by a band called House Fires, a really odd name, but a Christian band, odd name nonetheless. They had this song uh, called Life is a Gift. It's not a very good song, so I wouldn't even really go look it up afterwards. Um, but it had this one line in that really just stood out to me. It said, life is a gift, and the giver is good. Life is a gift, and the giver is good. And, and this, for me, that weekend just became something that God used to speak to me. He just reminded me that he has given me life, and if he'd given me life, how much more would he take care of that life? He just showed me that, man, Joe, I'm good. I'm good towards you, even in the midst of these troubles. I am good. I have given you life, and if that's all, that is good enough. And, and, and man, it just spoke to me in these moments that I, it was just one of the most refreshing and good weekends that I've ever had, and I was able to come away because I, was, I clung on to this truth that God had spoken to me. And, and David, uh, in, in, in the psalm, we see that he has a truth that he clings on to in the midst of being persecuted by these men. And we see it in, uh, in verse 3. He says this, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. 
David says here, this is the truth, he, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And, and when we talk about himself here, we talk about fellowship. Uh, we talk about a, a relationship that God has set apart David for fellowship, to know him intimately. Notice that it's not God has set apart David for king. It's not God has set apart primarily David, uh, primarily for David to be king, or primarily for David to slay Goliath, or primarily for David to write some awesome psalms, or primarily for David to be a great parent, or primarily for David to be a great husband. No, man, God did not do any of those but, uh, as he's the primary source, but primarily God had set apart David for himself. Why is that important? Because if God had not set David apart, uh, for himself, but rather set him primarily to be king, then David, outside of his kingship, would never have a confidence that God was for him. If, he had, if, it was, if David had primarily set him to be a great father, then outside of his fathering, was God really for him? He wouldn't have that confidence. But if for God, it was not about the role or service that David played, but it was about David himself. He, if you strip, strip away all those titles that society had given him of king, of father, of husband, of giant slayer, of musician, if you take all those away, what God ultimately cared about was a close, intimate relationship with David. And so while his kingship was being attacked, while he was being tried, people were trying to strip it away from him, he knew though it might be failing, that God was still for him. And some of you might be running businesses and might be struggling. Man, I want you to know that God didn't primarily set you apart to be a great businessman. Some of you might be pastors in this room. God didn't set you primarily to be a pastor. Some of you might be husbands and wives or girlfriends and boyfriends. That's, that's ultimately not your primary purpose. Your primary purpose that God has set you apart for is to know him intimately and to know him well. And why was this also important and helpful for David is because people were attacking him. People were speaking bad about him. They were shaming him. They were dishonoring him. They were saying, David did these things. They were lying and, and shaming his name. And, and as they did that, he, they got the ear of the people. People started to listen. Yes, oh, that must be true. I've seen him do something like that. And these gossips and lies started to spread, and he was starting to be maligned by society as people turned and listened to the lies. And as people were forsaking him in the midst of hardship, what does he cling on to? It does not matter because the God of all creation, he wants me. He loves me. He has a relationship with me. While all might forsake me, who is with me? God. That's what he wants. And so he has a confidence knowing that while others might turn, while others might listen, it does not matter because the one who matters most has not gone away. He has not abandoned me. And while others might choose to flee from you or to, to make gossip about you and people might believe it, while, while business partners might cheat you in business and cut you out, while spouses might start to believe the lies that other people are saying about you, while, while your children have started to turn away from you, whatever it might be, it does not matter in light of the fact that the God of all creation himself will not. And while it hurts and is sore, man, cling on to this truth that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ultimately wants to know you. And he will not abandon you. And he will want to grow closer to you. But while that knowledge, that truth, that God is for me, he will never leave me, he desires me, he set me apart for himself. While that truth can be a great healing to our wounds by the, 
the wounds that have been afflicted by others. May I, may I say that that is not the ultimate performance of this. If we are really wanting to get the healing to our bones and the sores that have been afflicted onto us by those who have hurt us, we need to make sure that we don't just have the knowledge that God wants to have a relationship with you, but rather we dive into that relationship. That true comfort comes not with knowing that God wants to know me, but true comfort comes in enjoying that knowledge and enjoying God himself. Getting to know him. Spending time in his word. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 11 or Matthew 10, one of the two, come to me all who are heavy laden. Why? Because it's in the coming to Christ that we find rest. It's not in the knowledge that Christ wants us to come and get rest. It is in the coming and enjoying Christ that we find the rest. That we find the peace, that we find the comfort, that we find the confidence. It is coming to him. And some of you are going through hardship and you're wondering where God is. And I want to encourage you, spend time knowing him. Dive into word and prayer. And in that you will find such joy, such comfort, such confidence, even when the world seems to be against you. Run to him. Verse 4 and 5 says, Be angry and do not sin, pondering your own hearts, uh, pondering your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer, sacrifice, uh, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So David has first addressed God, then he's addressed his enemies or those who are persecuting him. Now he shifts his attention again and he speaks to those who care about him, but yet are battling to stay out of the fight. And what I mean by that is that there are those who have noticed the injustices that have been taken uh, to David, who they care about, and man, they are wanting to dive straight in to defend him. They are wanting to get in there. You've messed with my friend and or my family member, and that means you've messed with me. Have we ever been there before? When, I, I mean, I've done some stupid things as a result of that. That, that someone has done something against somebody we love, and you're going, well, that you've messed with them. That means you've messed with me. And with these, these people that are going in David's life, well, man, I'm getting in there. I'm angry, and I'm cross, and I'm going to do something about these people that are, uh, that are attacking David. And, and what is David's response to you and to them? Be angry and do not sin. So clearly there's an indication that anger isn't always sin. It's most of the time sin, but it's not always sin. It's not, it's not sin when we are angry against sinful acts. It's not sin when we're angry against the tax of God and, and his, in his character and his fame. It's not sin when it is characterized and uh, uh, when, it's not sin when it's alongside other Christian characteristics. Often that's not the case, but that's when we know that we have avoided sin. And David sees that their anger is right, but he doesn't want them to act on it because it might lead to some sinful things. So what does he say to them? Be angry, go lie in your bed, think about it, and don't do anything. I actually, in fact, go offer right sacrifices. So, so go and lie about it and make sure you do some good stuff afterwards. Just don't respond to it. Don't dive in. Don't get angry. Why can he say that? Why is David so confident that he doesn't need their help? Why doesn't he need them to dive in and save him? What, because we see at the end of verse 5, what does he say? Put your trust in the Lord. David points out that while you are wanting to come and fight for me, man, I want you to know that God's going to fight for me. You, you want to come and vindicate me, but don't worry. God's going to vindicate me. God's on my side. God's for me. God will make sure that he comes and fights this battle. You just stop, watch, and see him do it. Don't get involved yourself. You're going to make things worse. 
But watch God. He is going to do something. While they might judge me and say I did all these things, ultimately he has judged me and called me righteous. And he will not let me be put to shame. He is on my side. And we, we, see, we see David says something similar in Psalm 25, verses 1 to 3. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me uh, no, uh, not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exalt me. Exalt over me. Here it says, Indeed, no one who waits for you shall be put to shame. No one who waits for you shall be put to shame. Friends, you can have a confidence that God is going to fight this battle for you. You can be confident that he is not going to let you be put to shame. Stop. Watch. Do not sin in your anger and see God come through because ultimately what he declares about you is what stands. Not what they say, but what he says. Lastly, we see in verses, not lastly, second lastly, we see in verse uh, 6 and 7, it says this. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So again, David shifts his focus again. So he's spoken to God. He's spoken to his enemies. He's spoken to those who are close to him or angry. But this time he shifts his gaze a little bit more and he speaks to those who are for him but yet are despondent. They're not angry. They're just, man, things are tough and they, they know it and, and they're disappointed. They're despondent. They're not in a particular good spot. And one of the hardest things to face when you're going through a tough time is not necessarily an enemy who's attacking you directly, but one of the things, because that can be overcome with the confidence and faith with God, but something that can quench faith and, and take away confidence is someone who's close and doubts and keeps on bringing doubt for, is God going to come through? And one of the most natural things that I want to put you at ease is when we're going through hardship after hardship after hardship is to start to, it's natural but not good, to start to doubt. Oh, Lord, when are, you, when are you going to come through for me here? When am I going to catch a break? When am I finally going to get the rub of the green? That is just something natural to do. But what does David do, and how does he respond to them? These people that are constantly uh, going, man, I don't see it coming right. He says this, he says in verse 7, he says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. David is king. So what that means is he lived a king's life. He knows exactly what it means to abound. He knows exactly what it means to have the greatest food, the greatest buffets, the greatest meals. He knows what it's like to taste the greatest wines. He's enjoyed it all in the most uh, crazy circumstances. He's had the most mad parties. He's, he's tried it all. But yet in all of that, David can say with confidence, even when they are partying and going hard and enjoying all the wine and the food and having a fantastic time, Lord, you give me more joy than when I have been in those circumstances. So David is saying, man, don't look at your circumstances and say, oh, things are bad. Actually, regardless of how bad things might be, I want you to know that I have a joy. I have a joy in this God. And how does he have this joy even in the midst of suffering? It's because he has a closer relationship with Jesus or with the Father. He has a close, close relationship with God. And as a result, he can confidently say, even when things are falling about him, man, I have a joy. Don't be despondent. God is good to me. He says, things might be going tough, but God is good. 
I have a joy that's far outweighs even when things are going great. Don't be disappointed. And I want you to know that when you come closely into God and you start to enjoy that relationship, you will have a joy in Him that is not dependent on whether or not your finances are great. You will have a joy in Him that's not dependent on your circumstances. Yes, they are tough. That's why they're called tight spots. That's why David is crying out to God. But even in the midst of those things, there is this joy that far outweighs that of having grain and wine abound. And what does this all result into? Let's look at the last verse. It says this, In, in peace I, ha- I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. When we are going through hard times, we start to become anxious. And I know every single one of us have experienced this in this room. When we are anxious and we are going through difficulty, we try to sleep and we just can't, right? Sleep is fleeting. You lie there, you start to think of plans, you start to stress, you, you, you put your head on the pillow, but sleep is evading, it just does not happen. You exam time, you know exactly what's that like, you're running through all the stuff in your head, trying to memorize it, you're stressing about the next day, or it might be a business a proposal that you're bringing up, it might be times struggling in your marriage, or whatever the case might be, it starts to run in your head. But that's not the case for David. It doesn't, doesn't keep him up at night, but rather David says, the moment he puts his head down, he falls asleep. He just goes to sleep. Even in the midst of tight spots, he sleeps. All this confidence in God means that he is overcome with a peace that he can just lie down and sleep because the Lord, only the Lord can make him dwell in safety. And the word safety there comes from the root word trust. It's because he trusts in God, even in the midst of this, that he is able to lie down and just have a dose, and not worry about it. He can just sleep. It's wonderful. And friends, this confidence is available to us, because nothing that David had confidence in that you can't have confidence in either. God is for you. You can approach him in the midst of your hardships. Why? Because he's your righteousness in Christ. You can know that he is gracious towards you, and he'll hear you. Why? Because he has graciously given him you his son. You can know that he will come through for you. Why? Because he has come through for you in other tight spots. And if not, he has come through for you and saved you from sin, the greatest tight spots. He has, you can have confidence in him because he has set you apart for himself. Not for what you can give him, not for what you can do, but for himself. And while others might forsake you, while others might abandon you, he wants you and you can have confidence in that. You can have a confidence in the fact that he gives you more joy than anything else. That there is a joy in him that is available that is not dependent on your circumstances. You can have a confidence in the fact that he will vindicate you. He will not put you to shame. He will fight this battle for you. And ultimately the outcome is because he loves you. You can have this confidence, and if you have the confidence, you can have a peace that is well-founded and that does not depend on your circumstance, and this is in Christ. That is for you.